Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by James Hunt, co host of the Cinematic Universe podcast. Hello, James. Hello. Nice to nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to have you on the show. I'm a long term listener to Cinematic Universe podcast, and uh, and yeah, I've been I've been meaning to get, to invite you to our our sort of pod nook uh, for a while to talk about films that are typically a lot shorter than the films that you cover on your podcast. Yeah, yeah, the like it. You know, I love a short film, but superhero films are not where you go for that kind of uh, conciseness. I think what was it the the Batman you could have only done on this podcast by splitting it up into two movies <laughs> that's true the, the matt reeves uh 2022 batman is is i think a bang on 180 minutes like i loved it like uh, i was surprised how much i enjoyed it given its length but oh, come on guys i thought like watching a good film is a magic trick and and watching a long good film it's like an even more impressive magic trick because like they kept the ball in the air for even longer than you'd have to do on a short film but it does feel like you give yourself more opportunity with a longer film to drop uh, the metaphorical ball and 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 i do feel like that's the common complaint we hear about sort of modern blockbusters is like oh it's really good but it's a bit too long but you know since the batman there's been you know a couple of two hours and 20 minute or two hours and 30 minute uh, sort of blockbusters which you're like no you, you maybe an under 90 minute version of that would have been nice yeah sure uh, Doctor just, Strange. just Chop out some time. <laughs> we were very excited when there were rumours that Venom 2 was going to be under 90 minutes and it just edged over the line in the end, didn't it? I'd love to know where that rumour came from. Like normally, like on the internet with um you know all the film gossip out there is, you know, this person's gonna cameo in X movie or this is gonna be revealed. With Venom 2, it was it might be under 90 minutes. <laughs> and there were deadline articles about it, you know, it was on TMZ, it was crazy. And then it was 97 minutes, well over the uh the, the recommended runtime of, of that particular film. I know. Ridiculous, ridiculous. I mean, you could have cut that down. Imagine, that could have been the first under 90-minute superhero film in, in, in quite some time. <laughs> we, we have covered a couple of superhero films on the show previously, but it's mostly animated films that sort of fall into the under 90-minute bracket. I don't think there is a live-action superhero film we could do on this show. I mean, there is. I almost chose it, actually. I, I, almo I almost chose another James Gunn film, which was called um, Brightburn. Oh, that's oh, wow. that is bang on ninety minutes running time, but for various reasons, not least that it's not a particularly interesting version of the Superman story, I, I did not pick it in the end. Oh wow, I didn't know that was uh, James Gunn had his uh, had anything to do with that one, so um, I've learned something today. Also, didn't know that was um, that was that runtime, but I do remember that film coming out. Yeah, I think uh, James Gunn just produced it. In fact, it was written by Brian Gunn. And Mark Gunn, in fact, who I assume to be his brothers. I like that he, he tends to keep, uh, you know, keep, keep, he, he gives his family work. You know, he's always setting his <laughs> brothers up uh, with a job, including regular cast members in his films. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, well, I mean, maybe one day. This is the challenge. We're laying down the gauntlet. If you're listening, studio execs at Marvel or, or DC, uh, please, come on. You must have some Z-list character you could toss off into a 70-minute long picture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of me thinks when, when watching all of those MCU Disney Plus shows... I, I just think, spend the same money and just do a 90-minute TV movie and imagine imagine how much fun we'd have had with Moon Knight if it had been 90 minutes long instead of six years. I was going to ask on, on your podcast, on Cinematic Universe, it started as a show talking about superhero movies at the cinema, but it, it has you know started to talk about television. How's, how's that been over the last couple of years? I, I think the pandemic seemed to be perfectly aligned with Disney's uh, launch of these cinema... <laughs> Magic TV shows. <laughs> With their content strategy, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I, I've been a Marvel fan since I was a young teenager and, you know, I'm, I'm heading towards my 40s now. So on the one hand, I've had a really interesting time watching, you know, this sort of niche thing I love become the dominant pop culture narrative of, you know, the entire Western world. At the same time, I find myself watching a lot of the TV shows and going, I mean, if you're going to do this, maybe it could be good. Maybe it could be better. I worry that they're devaluing the Marvel Studios logo by putting it on some sort of quite ropey, <laughs> ropey TV shows. It's interesting seeing them really just going hard on, on making pretty much anything they can and making so much of it. You've pretty much covered on the show every superhero film released uh you know during the time you've you, you've been doing the show but also you've gone back into the archives of, of superhero films of you know days gone by just doing that exercise do you notice you know the trends changing and and you know how filmmaking is evolving or maybe devolving uh, in some cases one of the funniest things that we did was go back to you know the 1970s superman movie and just watching that and watching them sort of fumble with the idea of how do we do this genre like on screen the thing i find most interesting about that movie is that um you know you you think of that movie and you think about the christopher reeve performance and he doesn't turn up for maybe the first 45 minutes or so because it's all about the life of superman when he was a kid you sort of forget how long it takes christopher reeve to actually turn up in the film like nowadays, they would have started with an adult Christopher Reeve and put the flashbacks in, but they just they sort of hadn't figured the genre out yet. For the podcast, you watch uh, a lot of superhero films and, and, and comic book adaptations, and, and I, I sort of gather you are a, a film fan outside of, of that particular uh, genre. What goes into your decision-making process when you're watching a film at home or going to the cinema? Do you ever look at the runtime? Uh, do I ever look at the runtime? Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a big fan of a short movie because, you know, it's, especially when you're a parent, it's hard to squeeze a long film in. And I I will admit if I'm trying to sit at home and watch a movie, my attention is likely to wane past the two hours mark. So a short movie will be great. I think maybe the start of the year, I watched something like six movies in a row, which all were technically eligible for the podcast. Oh my God, a hero. Yeah, I was, I was cramming them in there. It was a, it was a lovely time to watch a short movie. Yeah, beyond that, I think I have a sort of personal strand where I'm trying to watch a lot of movies that were set and filmed in New York because I'm a bit of a New York nerd. So I'm sort of jumping around the decades with those. That's that's something I'm doing. And yeah, I'm trying to tick off some of the classics that I haven't haven't watched as well, because, you know, I'm as much as I am a film nerd, there are massive, massive gaping holes in the 
canon of cinema that I just haven't seen. So so when I reached out to you and, and we started talking about doing this podcast, how did you whittle down uh, your choices to what we're going to talk about today? So the first thing I did was go on my letterbox, Cine vs. James, and have a look at all of the recent movies I'd watched, which were under 90 minutes. And part of me thought, well, most of these I, I wouldn't feel confident talking about in a, you know, in a very authoritative way. I ended up going to some that I'd watched a few years ago. This one, the one I chose especially, there's just a lot about it that I find interesting, partly because it's sort of a, an imperfect movie. And I think film festivals need need that variety. And I was looking down the list of films that have been covered on the podcast and so many of them are absolute slam dunks. And I was like, no, if you go to a film festival, you end up seeing things that are sort of a bit half formed, a bit uh, rough around the edges. I'm going to pick something like that. And I I narrowed it down eventually to a few different films, a couple of which were by a director who ended up having some uh, allegations of uh, sexual impropriety against him. So I discounted them for obvious reasons. And I was left with, as I say, Brightburn or the one that I chose, which is the Belko experiment. Welcome to Belko Industries, a normally calm workplace that's about to devolve into a blood-soaked battle royale and a shocking case study of bone-crunching horror when 80 American employees are suddenly locked in their office building in Bogota, Colombia, a mysterious voice on the intercom tells them to participate in a ruthless game of kill or be killed. As the terror escalates, so does the body count. Now everyone is a competitor, and everyday objects become deadly weapons. Let the corporate carnage commence! <laughs> Wow, okay, they really, I mean, I think that is five out of five, A for effort, 10 gold stars, beautiful copywriting uh, right there. Like, they, just one of those lines would have been enough, but they they put them all in. (laughs) They went hard, they went very hard on that. This was from an era where people actually bought physical media. The, 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 the DVD sleeve is working very hard to make you know this is from people who made stuff what you might have heard of. Uh, weirdly, I feel like if this was made now, it would have James Gunn's name slapped all over it. And it is strangely absent. I mean, this this movie did come out after the first Guardian, so I'm surprised that it doesn't already. Really weird one. Um, yeah, so I guess for a bit of context, um, yeah, it came out in 2016. Low budget-ish uh, American horror uh, thriller directed by Greg McLean, an Australian director who did Wolf Creek and Wolf Creek 2 and Wolf Creek 3. <laughs> <laughs> um, also directed some operas. He's got actually quite an interesting directorial um, you know, CV, uh, but I think in movies he is mostly uh, associated uh, with, with horror or, or gore, uh, written uh, and produced by James Gunn, produced by Peter Safran, who long-term uh, producer of, of, of big uh, Warner Brothers uh, properties, especially. Um, and and just one hell of a cast as well. But um, you're right, it did come out uh, just after Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, in fact, I, I believe what happened was this um, this script was when he'd sold slightly earlier and it had been sitting, sitting around sort of unmade and basically off the back of Guardians or when Guardians was in the works. They said, you know, we're we're ready to make it. Do you want to direct it? And he said, well, no, I, you know, I'll produce, but I want creative control and my choice of director. And that's how it got it got made. So it's you know quite closely tied in to to his creative oversight, even though he didn't actually direct it. 
This is that um, blank check film, isn't it? You know, you've just done Guardians, you can do whatever you want. Well, I wrote this script a while ago. It's in a drawer. There is an interesting documentary on, on the disc, and he does say he wrote, wrote this in a week or something. It was like his, uh, he said he had a dream about this film. <laughs> oh, gosh, sounds horrible. Uh, and then he had to write it down, and then he wrote this film really, really quickly. And, uh, and yeah, he said after Guardians, he could kind of do whatever he wanted. <laughs> I just liked yeah. how upfront he was on the documentary. <laughs> like, I could do whatever I wanted, so uh, I got this film filmmates that i had a dream about it sort of has that feel to it doesn't it it does feel like something that came out quickly and in the sense that i think on letterbox it's described as office space meets battle royale and you can you can imagine that pitch arriving fully formed in someone's head and they go oh, yeah okay i'm doing that although i do i do have to take issue with the box copy because it, it says something like everyday objects become deadly weapons and as far as I'm concerned, there's nowhere near enough of that in the actual movie. Because it's, it's very soon into the film that they discover a cabinet full of guns. Yeah, I don't really remember. I mean, I mostly associate this one with being quite gunny. Uh, I, a lot of the big, really tense scenes involve characters with guns. I guess there's a couple of bits of office for the fun. Yeah, you know, someone someone gets a stapler to the head or whatever. But I think the most violent deaths are either guns or wrenches yes <laughs> wrench that classic bit of office furniture. <laughs> i think the uh, lead image is um is uh is is like maybe one of the only kills with some office stationery which is like one of those really heavy sellotape machines with like they always seem to have like a brick or a bit of concrete in the bottom never worked <laughs> why a sellotape machine needed to be so heavy but uh but this film tells you why because you can cave a man's skull in with it I was really pleased you you picked this and I loved your reason for picking actually. You're right. Film festivals are where films that don't always get released go. Mm-hmm. So it does, you know, they do have have scrappy films and, you know, only the most sort of commercial or marketable things tend to get picked up. But I do like that sense of discovery, going to a film festival totally blind and seeing something that might be, you know, just a one note idea, but they've done their thing and it's made because they had to make it. It's not made because it needs to be out <laughs> in Q4 of this, you know, our, our slate. Also, a film which I think barely got a release, even though it did have, you know, James Gunn's name attached to it and, and his involvement. I remember it It was an independent distributor who released it in the UK, made by Orion Pictures, who do quite sort of low budget, mm-hmm. uh, gory films these days. Um, and and I, I think I had to like travel across London to seek <laughs> it out at a cinema. And when I got there, it was playing in a tiny, you know, the smallest possible screen they could find <laughs> uh, to put it in. You know, like one of those screens where you're like, it's kind of like my living room a little bit. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it in the uh, one of the main screens of the Milton Keynes Cineworld, which is near where I live. And it was uh, very empty. It was me and maybe three or four other people in probably a 600 seater room. I don't think in the in the film festival we have too many 18 rated films. We have a few, but like our midnight, I'm, I'm sort of viewing the 18 rated films as our midnight slot. We've got things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there. So it could go alongside something like that quite happily, I think. Yeah, I mean, the 18 certificate movies are sort of a dying breed, aren't they? If anything, like you get the sense that even even horror movies tend to cap out at 15 unless they've got some real real gore they want to get on screen and this one definitely did i'm sorry but that sounds to me like you're saying you want to kill innocent people no i'm not saying that at all i'm saying that we need to discuss all our options but we, we understand but we are not going to entertain the option of killing people we what do you got a mouse in your pocket there melt mr norris has a point absolutely he does look we have to think about what is best for the whole group 
Right, look, I, I know no one wants to actually think about, uh, about sacrificing 30 lives, but if it means saving the lives of no. additional uh -uh. people... The synopsis didn't really talk about the plot so much, but I do love that there isn't really much setup to this film. We see a mysterious uh, office-looking building in in like this industrial park somewhere. We follow a character in. There's some guys with guns who don't seem to normally be there. He sort of queries why they're there, searching his car. It's all a bit of a mystery. There's like a little bit of like office space style chat at the beginning, like no more than five minutes of office politics and setting up characters. And uh, and and all of a sudden, the rug is pulled out from under our, our protagonists, and they get told they they have thirty minutes to, to kill two people at the beginning. And I just love that. That's I guess why this works as an eighty-six minute film. You know, it, it, there's no fluff. We're straight into it with the Belko experiment. Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't spend too much time on the characters. It's, it's mostly just here are here are the you know sort of ten people you're gonna meet in the film, and their one character trait is established. And then they're just, you know, everyone's told to start killing each other and, and you know, they get down to what I think is the, the fun stuff about the movie, which is when people start to grapple with the idea of, should we do this? What happens if we do this? Should we take a moral stand? And that, for me, around the gore, that is the, that's the thing that I find interesting. <laughs> constantly you're sort of like questioning what you would do or at least that's how i watched it so it's quite an involving film yeah because you know some some characters try and hide out some try and escape others are trying to attract attract attention for help others are just like straight down to the let's let's start finding people to off and other people are like well we obviously can't do this because you know they'll just kill us anyway so we can't compromise our morals and i i find that sort of thing definitely engaging when i when i look at the stuff i enjoy about superhero movies and the stuff i enjoy about you know sci-fi generally that's the the interrogation of ideas is what i like and that's that's the hook of this film that that sort of grabs me the stakes are super high in this film like it's sort of established that they all have a, a microchip in their head which will blow it up if they try to to break the rules and, and and that's established so quickly in you know really gory fashion so you know okay yeah that is not a route that is a blocked entry yep. <laughs> uh, now we need to try something else and they really are sort of forced and cajoled into doing what the voice over the intercom says which is you know you need to kill x number of colleagues at regular intervals or i'll kill even more of you it's a, it's a moral maze the film should be called the moral maze. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and I think I think that if anything is what sort of attracts me because I'm not a huge I'm not a huge horror fan, broadly speaking. Like you know, put put someone in a haunted house with a monster chasing them or a serial killer, or whatever. I'm sort of like, there's nothing about that idea that really grabs me. I, I did like the original Saw because it you know has a sort of taste of that. What would you do? How would you get out of this? I guess it's the the idea of like in a tough situation what would you find in yourself to to survive it that's that's what attracts me I like um it's a lot to say that I enjoy escape room the the movie but that's that's the sort of horror film that I if I'm going to go and see one I'll just think yeah that looks like a good time and that has a similar sort of flavor to this I think yeah I think I think you're right you're very like the stakes being raised all of a sudden and and also extreme gore I, I really I really like escape room and I really like escape room too <laughs> I've not seen it yet 
It's just the the high concept is what attracts me to these sort of movies. Yeah, high concept horror is uh, or, or you know, horror thrillers and, and and that sort of thing are are really fun, and I think they are you know, quite rare. Maybe they are being made and maybe not being released, uh, you know, in, in sort of as big a way. Um, I don't think there's been a you know like a tentpole <laughs> version of these, you know, <laughs> uh, with like you know big A list actors, and, and it's you know it's the big summer release. These usually sort of creep out alongside uh, a bigger blockbuster, so you do have to kind of make the effort to seek them out or be told you know by a trusted source uh, to go and go and check it out but yeah i think there's there's room for stuff like this in the film calendar <laughs> i think uh the sort of the month before or the month after halloween is when these movies come out because they're like it's not it's not a big horror film but people who are still in the mood for horror can go and find it i think what i like about it as well is this is very much like you know this is a standalone closed book of a of a film you know it's not trying to build up a universe or or take the characters <laughs> well... onto their next adventure um <laughs> you know this is there is a definite end uh to this but in that like hokey kind of sci-fi way or you know a lot of horror movies like to do this they like to to put in the you know leaving the door open uh see what's going on on the other side of the world yeah it has a bit um for me it was a bit cabin in the woods that ending no, it's not to spoil cabin in the woods for anyone for so many reasons i think it would be a really good double bill with cabin in the woods cabin in the woods is unfortunately too long uh, for us to consider as part of the festival but it does it does have a similar sort of style you know like throwbacky schlocky making but filmmaking but done in a in a very modern crisp digital cgi kind of way uh, also with you know some superhero connections in both i was about to say yeah with it with a lot of marvel adjacent characters and actors yeah, yeah. both of the films are what the marvel talent make on their off days <laughs> <laughs> We should mention the cast because there is one hell of a cast in this film. And I think even some of the big names, like everybody gives a good performance. But isn't it so nice to see people like John C. McGinley in, a, in anything? <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing I really like about his performance is just that it, it reminds you a bit of Dr. Cox from Scrubs. But in, in the, it's like the most psychopathic, manic version of that. That, like that's what the character would be like if he wasn't in a sitcom like just absolutely unbearable and awful sometimes you know in in, in these films it's very clear who who you should be rooting for or who the protagonist is or who's going to maybe make it to the end and i do think in this film there are some like unexpected deaths uh throughout like they kill off some of the big hitters you know halfway through early on it, it's a real surprise yeah i mean again stop listening if you don't want spoilers here but i think the the speed with which they dispatch michael rooker who i think is probably the most famous person in the cast maybe the i don't know it's hard to say isn't it but he's a, he's a, one of the more recognizable names and he's one of the first to go in i think um the hunt which came out just before the pandemic did a similar thing again a really a brutal death i think the deaths are inventive in this film and, and they'd love a bit of prosthetic uh skin uh to, you know to see the, the wounds yeah lots of lots of head molds got made for this movie we can say that much they really they really show it to you as well <laughs> <laughs> i think john gallagher jr who plays uh mike who's sort of like one of the more sympathetic characters he's the one who doesn't want to kill everybody when they're told they should probably kill everybody i think he gives such a a wonderful performance he's really really well cast he does a good mix of you know becoming heroic but also looking absolutely horrified from most of the movie <laughs> yeah and like there's sort of there's something interesting in there because it, it's not just like oh he's the good guy and therefore he doesn't want to kill anyone because like a lot of the circumstance they're in it's almost irrational his belief that like no we shouldn't kill anyone because like you sort of sympathize in a way with the people who are going like well maybe we need to just you know randomly draw lots and and 
pick half of us so the other half can survive and he's going like no if if one of us dies we should all die or whatever so you know it's interesting that there is some ambiguity there it's not just a straight up like he's the good guy and therefore will survive like you're never really sure no he's the guy who doesn't want to commit and i guess some people very quickly face the harsh you know the, the, the reality of the situation which is like well like one of the scenarios I put in is you have to kill 30 colleagues, you know, yourselves, or we're going to kill 60 of you. And they're like, well, 30 is better than 60. And you, and you sort of see people rationalizing it, but he isn't willing to entertain that uh, at all, even though he knows that he could be one of the people who will die or, you know, more people could lives are at risk. So yeah, he's not, um, he's not necessarily sort of doing it for the greater good, but he's trying to do it to keep a clean uh, conscious maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like will the victory be Pyrrhic? That's the question you're asking with his character. Cause you know, he might he might avoid dirtying his hands, but maybe everyone's going to die as a result. I do think Sean Gunn, yet another gun, is incredibly charming in, in this film. He just he just wants to get high. He's he's had enough. <laughs> I like I like how I like how confidently he's he's talking first at like just just an experiment. They're just messing with us, and then you know that that theory gets blown apart quite vi- quite visibly in front of his eyes. So. You know, he, mo- he moves on to like, oh, they're putting psychedelics in the water and he just spends all his time running around the office building, emptying the water coolers. Like he's clearly, he's freaking out in, in so many different ways. It's interesting as well, because like when, when you think James Gunn, you sort of think, oh yeah, violence and comedy, but there's not actually a lot of comedy in this movie. Like what there is tends to come from Sean Gunn's character. I'm Helen O'Hara, film journalist, author and host of Women vs. Hollywood, a new podcast from the Stripped Media family. We're exploring the fall and rise of women in Hollywood from the silent era to the present day and into the future. Each episode, I'm joined by three or more special guests to discuss the challenges that women face in the film industry and look at what we can do to change the picture. We've got actors, directors, producers, writers, academics, film experts, you name it, they're all here to explain what's going on in Hollywood. Search for Women vs. Hollywood now, wherever you're listening to this, and come join us. What I like about this film is they it's a quick 86 minutes, in and out, this is our story. We're not going to give you a lot of world building or, or anything like that. Like, I like that they didn't tell us why this happened or who was behind it particularly. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I think the the time they did spend on that at the end was almost not worth it. <laughs> like, I was just like, eh, it doesn't really add anything to the film. I guess it means you don't leave thinking too much about that. And you think more about, you know, how how would that situation go for me? How would I react? How would my friends react? Like, that's... Maybe maybe giving you an explanation, however thin it is at the end, is, is what focuses you on the more interesting aspects of the movie instead of just going like, yeah, but who was behind it? They, they left it at a point where it's all gone to shit at Belco, but there might be other Belco installations and maybe we could see what's there with a whole new set of characters. Like it could become this loosely connected sort of series of stories um, just linked by the location and the horrible sort of circumstance uh, like a saw franchise or something when when i was watching this i was sort of thinking oh they could have done a cloverfield type thing where they just you know came back with like the belco ultimatum or something like they could have done any any number of different words at the end after the belco and you would have gone yeah that's part of the same franchise i can sort of imagine like you know back in the day when you would get you know a movie and then they would do a sort of off but off brand low budget tv version like the robocop tv show or something you can sort you can sort of imagine a Netflix follow up to the Balco experiment. 
this was a you know this was a scrappy production it was a really low budget you know you could definitely sort of churn these these things out and and make profit i think this film was profitable it was counter programming to uh, the beauty and the beast remake i mean i think i think it, it earned what it was 11 million on a 5 million budget so it didn't didn't do masses but good good enough <laughs> yeah i guess what they look for is is sort of films where they make it for 10 and bring in 150 or whatever isn't it with with horror movies so Maybe maybe it just needed to do a bit more in order to catch on, really. Yeah, that's true. And I do I don't think the reviews were were super positive. Like I think it was quite mixed. I'm missing lots of like twos and threes, which actually kind of make me want to see a film a bit more sometimes. Yeah, especially when the high concept is good, you you can sort of go well. I th- I think in this case especially, it's easy to look at it and go well you're you're doing a film set in an office where people are forced to kill each other. Why isn't why isn't it more satirical? Why isn't it like, why isn't it doing like joke sort of PowerPoint presentations or why aren't people getting the head mashed in the photocopy or whatever? Like it's, it's sort of almost the reviews are for what it wasn't rather than what it was. Sometimes these smaller horror films, especially they get the reviews in, in, in print, which might be, you know, just a couple of lines. Horror film, quite gory, James Gunn, three stars, two stars. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, that's one of the attractions of film being, the film being sort of short and cheap, which is that it doesn't feel like you've wasted a lot of time by watching it. So you're free to kind of, you know, chew on the, chew on the things you enjoy and discard the bits you don't because you haven't. You know, you haven't invested a lot of time and mental energy in in watching it. You're not being asked to prepare for sequels. Genuinely, if I was going to change anything about this movie, it would be just don't give them guns. It's so easy. I feel like this about a lot of American movies, in fact, which is that almost every action movie is just like gun, gun, gun. Everyone's got, you know, an entire belt full of magazines ready to go. And I'm just like... There's a bit at the start of the film where the security guard guy reveals that he has a gun and the the sort of power of that moment is massively undermined when they break into the weapons locker that has been put there for them to find and suddenly everyone has guns. I totally agree with that. I um, I love that inventive, you know, like diehard style filmmaking where, you know, you just have to use what's around you. Maybe there is a gun, but maybe it's incredibly limited. And, you know, once you run out of bullets, it's not very much use. But uh, but they don't really, they get into that a tiny bit with like, you know, I'll save a bullet and I'll twist your neck or something. But it's not a, it's not a major point of concern. And yeah, the weapons cabinet full of, you know, very large guns is revealed quite uh, quite early on. And like the the genre it's working within, you know, the battle royale genre, like that's informed by the original battle royale movie, where the the sort of joke there was that some of them had guns and some of them had axes and some of them had you know silver trays. And like that that in itself was funny. Like some like got a taser or just some people had useless stuff, and it was inventive and interesting to to work within the confines of what you'd been given and it wasn't automatically like the person who has five guns is the one who's going to win the win the game so i sort of i wish they'd lent into that slightly more with the genre tropes Well, there we are. We've got the Belko Experiment, yet another 18-rated film added to our, our late-night uh, horror selection uh, as part of our film festival. I, I think this is a, is a great addition. Thank you very much, James, for contributing it to the festival. 
Uh, as you may or may not know, by selecting this film, you've actually committed to uh, to a whole hoo-ha of activity <laughs> uh, around the screening at our film festival. Um, you know, we are a, a physical film festival. We're not a, an online streaming film festival. You need to leave your house and buy a ticket. Uh, please, please buy a ticket to attend <laughs> this event. And uh, we'd love to, to, to ask you where you, as the programmer of this movie, where you would like to screen it. Uh, do you have a, a maybe a favourite cinema or a location that would suit the the film uh, to, to screen the Belko experiment uh, it's very uh, that's a very good question I mean I, I think I have to go with what I imagine would be a very popular choice which is the the closest thing central London has to a grindhouse cinema which is the Prince Charles cinema like that I can't imagine a better setting to watch this movie I fully agree. And it's not been selected as much as you might think, considering a lot of our guests are sort of London locals or adjacent to London um, and invested in, you know, like the film sort of scene here. But uh, yeah, no, that's a perfect venue. Like when you can get a perfect match of venue and, and, and film, uh, it's that's like a magic trick in its own right. And yeah, this would be very, a very happy uh, home at the Prince Charles. Finishing after midnight, exactly what you want. Spilling out onto Leicester Square when it's deserted. That's that's exactly the vibe you want from the end of this movie even after the Leicester Square Burger King has closed <laughs> then you know it's really late the, the all vegan Burger King as it is at the moment yeah going to the cinema is an event you'd like to have some drinks like to have some snacks if you had to choose a menu to go alongside this screening um are we talking pre-cinema dining or in the screening let's think about the venue a bit so the prince charles they they sort of have more of a trad kiosk i guess yeah. it's more pre-packaged snacks and, and and popcorn and drinks that sort of thing it's not where it's not one of those ones where you can you know take a whole pie into the screen with you yeah let's <laughs> give you a pie to put in your in your bare hands <laughs> <laughs> no nacho hats yeah um <laughs> Given the amount of exploded heads in this movie, I would I would give everyone a whole watermelon to eat with their <laughs> with their hands with their bare hands. You just have to crack it open by any means necessary. Belko experiment the audience yep. with fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love that. I mean, that would create the mess in the auditorium that the film does on screen. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, I like that, and I'm sure a lot of watermelons were used in the sound effects department for uh, for those, those, those wounds. Uh, okay, that's good. I like that, actually. It's kind of nice. It's vegetarian. It's, it's healthy. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's a participation exercise. Exactly. You have to get inventive to crack it open. When you get to the cinema, you show your ticket. Oh, lovely stuff. Here's your watermelon. And then you have to carry your watermelon to your seat <laughs> <laughs> and um you know we're, we are a, we're a flash film festival you know we've got we've got all sorts of inns with talent and and you know a little black address book of, of people we can reach out to if you if you wanted to invite someone to maybe introduce the film or to do a Q&A afterwards who would you like to see on stage at the Prince Charles with a watermelon of course there are so many people to choose from I think I think Sean Gunn would have to would have to come do it because I feel like he lives in the shadow of James Gunn a little bit and he he has his own fans and they deserve to see him on on stage discussing his thoughts about <laughs> starring in another one of his brother's movies. That would be fascinating because you're right he doesn't tend to you know do a lot of interviews because he's whilst he's in all of the films he's often quite a small role sometimes or you know he's not one of the big a-list hollywood stars yeah and he is great like he's he's so good in everything i would love that and also he's got that you know relationship with his brother outside of the films as well you know like and maybe he can add a bit of context and yeah he sort of has quite fun parts in his brother's films well he he always gives a big a big performance doesn't he he's never he's never like the 
you know, the subtle one. He's always giving you 110%. Okay, so we're going to be at the Prince Charles, late night screening. We're going to give you a watermelon. And then we're going to, after the film, watch uh, watch Young Gun. Just, just, you know, share his memories uh, from making this movie. Sounds good to me, yeah. That sounds like a great event. I, I, I love it. That actually sounds doable. I feel like we could probably approach the Prince Charles, grab a, a job lot of watermelons and send an email to, uh, to Sean Gunn. <laughs> sounds good to me. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, James. It's been really nice to, to have you on the show. I say I'm a big fan of Cinematic Universe. Listeners, we'll put it all in the show notes, but wherever you're listening to this, search for Cinematic Universe. Do check the show out, and they have a wonderful Patreon for lots of extra podcasts, and uh, and they're on they're on social media. Where should people uh, follow uh, you and, and the podcast on, on social, James? Uh, so anyone who wants to follow me can find me on Twitter. I'm at James Hunt. Uh, if you want to follow the Cinematic Universe podcast, we are at Cine underscore Verse. And uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash cinematic universe, where we do sort of almost weekly bonus podcast about, tends to be about um, the Disney Plus TV show Watch Along. So if you're a fan of those, we can guarantee a lot of, a lot of discussion informed by, you know, 25, 30 years of comics reading knowledge. Thank you so much for your time and, and, and for uh, for bringing the Belko experiment uh, into the 90 Minutes Less Film Fest. Um, um, hopefully we'll, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, hopefully. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo share an episode with your friends every recommendation helps you can contact us on our website 90minfilmfest.com and on twitter and instagram at 90minfilmfest the podcast is produced by me sam clements and louise owen it's edited by louise owen with sound mixing and additional editing by luke smith our music is by martin ostwick and our artwork is by sam gilby we'll be back in a couple of weeks We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 